Please turn your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23. We're continuing to to make our way through the book of Leviticus and through the Pentateuch and just would encourage you to be kind of reading through some of these passages on your own. We don't always have the time to to go through each uh, verses in depth as we'd like. We're trying to go through this this survey of the first five books of the Bible and in fact encourage you to be reading maybe through the end of Leviticus this week and next as we're going to look at the year of Jubilee uh, next Sunday, Lord willing, and then uh, kind of finishing it up in, in the next few weeks. So uh, that's that's where we are this morning. Also, we are observing the Lord's Supper this morning, and so as we uh, talk through these things, I would encourage you to be preparing your heart for that, that as a response to this, this time of worshiping God in song and worshiping Him through His Word, that your hearts would be prepared to celebrate the Lord's Supper here at the conclusion of our service as we do that together as a body. Leviticus 23 is discussing the the feasts of the Lord that he calls on his people, the Israelites, to observe. And so we're going to be kind of talking through some of those fasts, uh, some of those feasts this morning. If you would stand with me in honor of God as we read a portion of this chapter together. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. For six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So after talking about the Sabbath, he mentions the first feast, the Passover, and the the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, verse 4, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month of twilight, is the Lord's Passover, and on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation, You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day, it's a holy convocation, it's an assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. And then beginning in verse 9, he tells about the Feast of First Fruits, then how to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, beginning in verse 15. Verse 23 through verse 25 describe the Feast of Trumpets. Then we have the Day of Atonement that we've discussed before in verses 26 through 32. And then in verse 33, we begin the description of the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles and uh, then in, or or Tents. And then beginning in verse 39, we read, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, You shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast of the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever. Throughout your generations you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. You may be seated. May God encourage us this morning and Heavenly Father, we, as Wayne prayed, we do thank you for this, this time together this, this morning to think about you and to think about our, our calendars and how to exalt you in all aspects of our life. And we pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. There's a, a book that I'm reading right now by David Murray, and it's called Reset. Uh, it's, it's subtitled, How to Live a Grace-Paced Life in a burnout culture. How to live a grace-paced life in a burnout culture. Uh, it's Reset by David Murray. And 
when Crossway published this book, they, they sent out some promotional materials and had some, some graphs with it, some responses to some surveys. I want to show you a couple of these, these surveys. Here's the first one. Uh, this asks the question, have you experienced burnout? I'm not sure how well you can, can see that, but the blue that you see there are, are people who answered yes, okay? So that's not a good sign. <laughs> the question, have you experienced burnout? And they, they define burnout this way. A, a state of physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual exhaustion. So it's this exhaustion. It says it's caused by living at too fast a pace for too long or by living with too many stresses in our lives. Or as some of us call it, Wednesdays, right? Or Thursdays or Fridays. You know, For a lot of us, we would say, boy, I feel like I'm burned out on a daily basis. And, and this, this survey response would indicate that as well. About 80% of people on average would say, yeah, that's, that's true of me. It doesn't matter male, female, married, unmarried, kids, no kids. Most people would say, boy, this is, this is true of what I have experienced. Here's another graph that I think is kind of interesting. This is also kind of sobering, a little bit discouraging. How long, question, how long did that season of burnout last. Okay, so people who are asked that question on average would say longer than six months. And that's kind of discouraging. They go, okay, I'm, I'm in this situation. And a lot of people have the thinking, okay, I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausted. But boy, once I get through these two things or this project or this holiday, then things will settle down and I'll get some strength back. But, but really, we see for most people that's not the case. In other words, there are probably some underlying heart issues that, that are affecting how we are responding to, to stresses and to the, the patterns of, of life. Here's another graphic that I think is, is interesting. Some people would say, well, what contributed to my burnout? And they, they point to a lot of different things. Work pressures or overwork or too little sleep, home pressures, not enough exercise, financial need, or, or criticism of others. That, that kind of contributed to the burnout. But but really, we see there's, there's something going on in our hearts, right? In terms of not always causing our calendars to be busy, because sometimes there, there are things that are outside of our control, but, but in how we respond to, to what's happening in our life. And here's the last graphic that I think is kind of interesting to think about. The question was asked, what were the negative effects of your burnout? What happened as a result of, of this time of physical, emotional, spiritual exhaustion? And, and this is what people said. They said things like sin, that was the fruit of this, this, this season of my life. Broken relationships. Some people would even say uh, there was some sort of medical help that was needed because of, of the circumstance in my life. I had a, had a physical breakdown and, and it manifested itself in, in health problems. Some people would even say it costs them their job or, or their marriage. So what does this mean? It means that the problem with burnout is not just that it's uncomfortable. In other words, we don't say that burnout is bad just because it makes us uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's bad because there's some negative consequences and it, it makes us feel bad. As we look at this, we say, okay, this is, this is some of the fruit that's produced in a heart that's, that's at, a, at a place of physical, mental, spiritual exhaustion. When, when we see this fruit, what does this tell us? It tells us that, that this is not a life that is exalting Christ, right? If I want my life to be a life that exalts Christ, and, and this is the fruit, sin, broken relationships, pushing myself to the point of, of needing physical help for what's taking place in my life. This is not, this right here is not a life that exalts the name of Jesus Christ, right? That's the problem. Here's the main idea that I want you to grasp this morning as we look at Leviticus 23. My calendar, and by calendar I mean the structure and rhythm of my life, my calendar should proclaim my love for Jesus Christ. 
And so often as we look at the rhythm, the structure, the pattern, what's going on in our life, we say, boy, this, this calendar does not reflect a love for Jesus Christ. Some calendars you look at and you say, boy, that calendar is a pretty lazy calendar. Or some calendars you look at and you say, boy, that is a, that is a very busy calendar. But it's, but it's busy not in a way that exalts God. It's, it's busy in a way that, that actually, and this is, this is a sobering thing for me to come to the realization of, Sometimes, even in a, a busy calendar that's busy doing things that you think are, are there because you're trying to honor God, sometimes those very things that are meant to honor God are leading to a life that doesn't exalt Him. It's true for some of us. It's certainly true for me. The name of Jesus Christ is not exalted by the way that I live, if, if, if those things are the result, right? Sin, marital problems, relational problems, physical illness, that's not a Christ-exalting calendar. My life, my calendar, the structure, the rhythm of my life should proclaim my love for Jesus Christ. And Again, the amazing thing to me is that the very things about my calendar that I thought reflected my love for God were often actually signs that I was in disobedience. I was talking to a co-laborer one time, and I said, boy, brother, your calendar doesn't seem like it's really uh, what, what God would want it to be. And, and he said, uh, well, Daniel, I find this kind of funny coming from you, Right? You're not modeling what you tell me I need to be doing. If, if, this is what I'm, if this is what a calendar is supposed to be to look like, help me see it. Show it. And I said, how dare you? No, I, <laughs> I said, that's a fair point, right? In fact, you know, this, this week has been a busy week uh, and, and not in a Christ-exalting way in my life. And, you know, there are often... There are often times where I, I have to, to preach things that I don't always apply well and preach to myself. And boy, if there's ever a passage that is very hypocritical for me to be talking about this week, this, this might be one, right? And so I am looking forward to continuing to repent in this area and seek the love of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in this area of my life as well. You say, well, Daniel, how do you get from Leviticus 23, which is talking about the feasts, to, to this main idea? Let me kind of walk you through kind of how I'm, I'm approaching this passage. As we come to Levit- Leviticus 23, what is Leviticus 23 talking about? It's talking about feasts. And within these, these feasts and these special days, God is telling them, look, I, I want on these days sacrifices and things like that to be practiced. And we've talked before about what sacrifices represented. Sacrifices were these, these things that the Israelites did that were a shadow of Jesus Christ. They pointed the people to Jesus Christ. And these feasts are the, the same thing. These feasts, the, the calendar that God gives to his people, is meant to proclaim redemptive truths about the Messiah. As they went through the, the rhythm of life and they engaged in this calendar. It was proclaiming truths about Jesus. That's, as I think about how to get to this, this, this main idea, that's the first thing I think about. Okay, this is, this is what it meant to this audience. Okay, here's, here's your calendar. Here's how you live. Here's when you offer this sacrifice and this sacrifice, and it's pointing to my son Jesus, to the Messiah. It's proclaiming redemptive truths in the way that you live your life. Now, the second thing I think about is, well, I'm, I'm not called to live by that calendar any longer. Jesus Christ has arrived. Paul, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says in verse 16, he's he's talked about Christ's incredible work of complete and absolute forgiveness. The, The one to whom the Old Testament prophets and the feasts and the sacrifices pointed to, he's arrived. We have complete forgiveness in him. And Paul writes in verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Or with regard to a festival, a feast, a new moon, or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So those things that the Israelites were doing were a shadow, and now the substance is in Jesus. Okay, so now what do I do with 
chapter 23 of Leviticus if I have Christ. And, and here's, here's what I do with it. Here's what I do with it. If the calendar of the Israelites was meant to proclaim redemptive truths about Jesus, and they didn't have Jesus yet, how much more should my calendar proclaim truths about Jesus Christ now that I have him? And so what I believe I I gain from Leviticus 23 is I go through these feasts and I see what aspect of Christ's work these feasts pointed to. And I think, okay, now how can my calendar proclaim the same truths about Jesus? That's, That's what I'm wrestling with this morning. That's what I want us to talk about together as we go through this this passage. My calendar, the structure, the rhythm of my life should proclaim my love for Jesus Christ. It should proclaim redemptive truths about my Savior. So let's let's try this out. Okay? And we're gonna go through we're gonna go through some of these super quickly. You can go back and, and read through some of this on your own. Here's the first thing I want us to see. The Sabbath. Okay, the Sabbath. As we look at the Sabbath, we see that my calendar needs to proclaim that I find my rest in Christ. In these first few verses, he's talking about how they're to observe the Sabbath. And he talks about the Sabbath before he gets to the feast. Six days, he says in verse 3, shall work be done. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath, a solemn rest, a, a holy convocation or assembly. Don't do any work on it. It's a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling place. So the Sabbath... It's going to serve as a model for the other feasts that follow. And remember what God has said about the Sabbath prior to this point. In the book of Exodus, as he's talking about the Ten Commandments, it says, he's talking about the Sabbath, and he says in verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. So he talks about creation. He says, therefore, because of what God did, therefore... The Lord blessed the Sabbath day. He, he made it holy. Later in Deuteronomy 5, he, he talks about the Sabbath and he ties it not just to God's power in creation, but his power in salvation. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. This is Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And so what we see here is that the Sabbath day is to be a day apart from work, apart from labor. It's to be a day reserved for, for rest, the, the cessation of labor. But it's not just sitting around all day. It's not just, well, oh my goodness, we are still here. It is still the Sabbath. I don't know, I'm going crazy. If there was a clock invented yet, I would be looking at it. What, how much long? Oh, we were, we've, we've only just begun the day. You've got to be kidding me. That's, that's not the Sabbath. It's not just sitting around, doing nothing. The, the Sabbath was this day that was set apart to, to contemplate these, these redemptive truths, uh, uh, these, these truths about God and his, his redemption and saving from Egypt and, and his power and creation. There's a focus. It was saying, okay, here's the regular rhythm of life, and now break up that regular rhythm of work and labor so that you have this, this time to contemplate and, and think about God and his power. And it was designed to break up the regular rhythm of the work life in, in, a, in a disruptive way. In other words, the, the, person, the person who wasn't resting in God would not be able to observe the Sabbath. Remember what happened earlier in the book of Exodus whenever he's telling them about the gathering of manna? And he says, don't go out and gather manna on the Sabbath. And what do they do? They go out like, I don't know about this. And they try to find it. And God says, look, what does he call it? He says, it's it's lack of belief. You don't believe me. You don't trust in me to provide. How does that relate to us in Christ? The writer of Hebrews tells us, that we can also fail to enter God's rest through unbelief. The Sabbath was to be the, a picture of the people resting in God and entering his promised land. The writer of Hebrews says this in, in Hebrews 3. He talks about 
entering God's rest, and he says, we, we've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And it says, the Israelites were unable to enter because of unbelief. And then he comes to chapter 4, and he says, if Joshua had given them rest, in other words, if they ex- experienced the fullness of rest whenever they arrived in the promised land, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. For you and for me, there remains a Sabbath day of rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And then he talks about the perfect priesthood of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, what that means for you and for me is that Jesus Christ is our priest in whom we trust. And just as the Israelites were called to trust in God and his provision, you and I are called to trust in God and his provision. And our calendar needs to proclaim that I find my rest and my peace and my security not in my own labors, but in Christ. And so often the reality is that my life reflects that I do not rest in Christ, but I'm resting in myself. I'm I'm trying to find peace and joy and delight in other sources. And God in his grace sometimes provides some warning signs for us. In fact, I'm going to read you some things from, again, from David Murray's book on, uh, called Reset. And Here's some, here's some warning signs that, that he gives. Let me show you a couple of these. These are some warning lights that, that, that you're not resting in Christ. Sometimes there are some physical warning lights. You have trouble sleeping. You're suffering one health issue after another. You're exhausted and lethargic all the time. You, you wake up early. You can't get back to sleep. There are sometimes some, some mental warning signs that, that God gives us in his grace that show us we're not resting in Christ. We find concentration hard or we're distracted so easily. We think obsessively about difficulties in our life. We get in a rut. We forget things that used to be easy to remember. We develop a hypercritical and cynical spirit. Our brain feels fried. There are also emotional warning lights that God gives us. You feel sad all the time, or, or just emotionally numb, pessimistic or hopeless about marriage, children, church, job, friendships, nation, whatever. Worry stalks you all day. Anxiety goes with you all day and climbs into bed with you at night. As soon as you wake and think about the day ahead, your heart starts pounding, your stomach starts churning over the decisions you face, people's expectations. You, you find it difficult to rejoice in others' joy. You feel helpless and worthless. These are, these are warning lights. Just like on a car, you have these little warning lights. Hey, watch out, watch out. God gives us these, these warning lights that says, hey, you know what? This is not the fruit of a heart that's trusting in me. These physical warning lights, these emotional warning lights, these mental warning lights, these are saying, you know what? You're, you're, you're trusting in yourself. In fact, what, what this means for me sometimes is not only not only do I sometimes convince myself that God has given me more than I can handle, I become convinced that God has somehow mistakenly given me more than he can handle, right? And I doubt his ability to take care of it, and so my calendar doesn't reflect that I'm resting in God. There are relational warning lights. You don't delight in your spouse you spend limited time with your children. The time you, you do spend is interrupted by, by different devices or, or poisoned by thinking about all the other things you should or could be doing. You avoid social occasions. You frequently lose your temper and you're in conflict with various people. Those are some emotional warning lights. There's vocational warning lights. You're working too many hours. You have little joy in your work. You're, you're miserable. You would do anything else but your present job. You're falling behind. Your, your motivation and drive have been replaced with avoidance, passivity, apathy as you drag yourself through the day. What is that? that you, you've sought your joy in something besides and your rest in something besides the Lord. There are moral warning lights that we see in our life. You view immoral material on the internet. You watch movies and, 
uh, with language and images you'd never have tolerated in the past. Your expense account and tax return have some half-truths in them. You cultivate close relationships with men or women who are not your husband or wife if you're married. You shade the truth in conversations. You exaggerate. You medicate yourself and your conscience by overspending, over-drinking, overeating. There's spiritual warning lights, of course, right? Your personal devotions have decreased in length and increased in distraction. There's little time or ability for meditation, reflection. You don't have the same ongoing conversation with God that you used to have. You, you skip church. When you do attend, when you do attend, you leave quickly and don't hang around to fellowship with or minister to others. Listening to sermons sends you to sleep. Okay, I think we're good. You believe the half, <laughs> you believe, I, I have fallen asleep in my fair share of sermons. You're, we're, we're safe here, okay? Grace. Yeah. I've fallen asleep in my own, I've literally fallen asleep thinking through my own sermons before, so. You believe all the truths of the Bible, but you don't believe them for yourself. Those are some spiritual warning signs. Brothers and sisters, what I'm saying is this. We rest in Christ. And the Sabbath, I'm spending more time on the Sabbath here because the Sabbath serves as a foundation for all the other feasts. It, it serves as kind of a, this, this beginning of a model. And it begins with me saying, okay, my calendar is going to reflect that my joy and my delight is not found in, in, other, in other springs. My ultimate rest and trust and satisfaction is found in Jesus. Here's the second thing I want us to think about. The, the Passover, my calendar needs to proclaim that I have been delivered from the power of sin by Christ. Now, we've talked before about the Passover and how the Passover is connected here with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover represents the angel passing over the homes of the Israelites as the doorposts were covered in blood. That word Passover means to have compassion, to protect, to skip over, to rescue and, and the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is designed by the people to, in conjunction with remembering being delivered and, and spared the angel of death, the, the, the Unleavened Bread represents the haste in which they were delivered from Egypt and God's power and salvific hand. And they're to celebrate this by, by doing no ordinary work, but verse 8, you present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. Now, how does that feast proclaim Christ? We've, we've talked about this before, but what do we see in 1 Corinthians 5? We see that Christ is the Passover lamb. And, and we're called in verse 8 to celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven. In other words, there's a new way in which we celebrate this, this festival, not with the old leaven, but the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, how does this apply in our lives? How does, how does you say, okay, what does that mean? My calendar reflects it this way. Whenever I was younger, I was really afraid of, of roller coasters. I did not enjoy getting on a roller coaster. And, you know, there's that, there's that moment where you're in line getting ready to go on the roller coaster and, and you're thinking, okay, um, I can still get out of this. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause me a little bit of... Uh, I'm not going to look as cool in front of my friends, but I don't look cool anyway. So not a big loss there. I can still run. You get up to the, right up to the little car, and you're thinking, look, there's, there's the exit. I can just kind of, oh, guys, I'll see you at the end, and then just kind of walk out. Then you, then you sit down, and you're still thinking, as they, they, begin to, they begin to pull that bar down, you're like, I can still bite their arm and run. Um, but then there's that moment, right, where you're, you're strapped in. And once you're strapped in, that thing isn't going anywhere until the end of the ride. And then there's that, that feeling, and I think this is why I really did not enjoy roller coasters. There's, there's that feeling that I am stuck on this track, and there is nothing I can do to get off this track. I, I must endure this, right? For some of us with our calendars and, and the rhythm of our life, we feel like we are on this, this track, and there are going to be some, some huge highs and some incredible lows, and it's going to go fast, and we're going to do the loop-de-loop, and there's nothing I can do. I'm, I'm stuck. And some of the things that I, I'm doing, are, are, I know, man, this is not the way that a Christian should be spending his or her time. Maybe some of the things we feel trapped in is we are trapped 
in, in just some immoral things that happen in the day. Boy, this is not the way that I'm supposed to be spending my time. Or maybe it's not, Im, not like immoral. We just know it's not, it's not productive. And like, boy, this, I don't think this is how God would want me spending this resource of time. Or maybe if you're a parent, you have this time with your kids. And you say, okay, I have, I have this one day and, and the, the clock is ticking on my kids and them being in my home. And I, I've just wasted two hours doing something that I don't think is a, a great use of my time. Or maybe you're in a, a conflict with someone that you, you're in relationship with. Maybe you're in a conflict with your spouse. And your time with your spouse, do you know this? Your time with your spouse is limited. I was talking about this sometimes when, when counseling with people. I'll say, you know what? You guys, you say you love the Lord. You love each I know you. You, you want to love each other, and yet you've just you spent the last two days in conflict. And why did you? I don't know. I feel kind of trapped. You know, I feel like I'm on this roller coaster. I'm like, you know, you're not. The number of days you have in this life is, is limited. I, I, I did the calculations yesterday for me, okay? Now, God could take me home sooner. He could take me home later. But if I live an average lifespan for someone my age, I've got about a little over 14,000 days left, right? Why would I waste a day engaging in something that, that's just a, not the glory of God? Why would I waste a day with my, with my spouse in conflict? You feel trapped. Now, here's the thing that the gospel proclaims to us, that being in Jesus tells us, look, I'm not trapped by the power of sin anymore. The Passover lamb has arrived. I'm not stuck. I don't have to live, as Ephesians puts it, like the Gentiles live and the the futility of their thinking. I've been rescued by the gospel. Now, those things that consume my time, my thoughts, I'm not trapped in those things anymore. My day does not have to be a slave to sin how I respond to hard situations. I'm not trapped by sin. Here's the, the third thing I want us to think about. The Feast of first fruits. The Feast of first fruits. I, I, I see this. My calendar needs to proclaim that I'm united with Christ in his death and resurrection. As you look at verses 9 through 14, you see that this is, a, this is again, these are all in this first month of the religious calendar, the Jewish religious calendar. This is the um, the, the day after the Sabbath, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it, it, we're talking about March, April of our calendar, around Easter, the, the 16th of their month. And here, before they eat the, the fruit of their harvest, it says in verse 16, you, you shall not do that until you've brought the offering of your God. This is the first fruits. Now, what, how's, how's this relate to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that, that Christ is the first fruit, the first fruit of the resurrection. And other passages in Scripture tell me that I've, I've been united with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. And it refers to me as, and you as the first fruits. Now, if we were just talking about the Feast of Passover and we were just talking about, okay, I now have been freed from sin, that would be Good news, but it wouldn't be the totality of the good news. And, and many people come to this conclusion. They say, okay, I need to, my calendar needs to get better, and so I'm going to stop doing bad things with it. I'm, I'm going to start saying no. I'm not going to fill myself, uh, fill my calendar with, with stuff that other people want me to do. I, I'm going to be redemptive th- in my thinking, and so I'm going to stop doing bad things with my time. But here's, here's something really cool about the gospel. If I simply, if I simply stop being a people pleaser with my time and just become a self pleaser, I haven't made any real progress, right? If I say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm done with other people dictating my calendar, with being so busy, I'm just going to, you know, it's, it's me time, right? The, the problem with that is I'm still not exalting Christ with my calendar. And what, what the Feast of the First Fruit tells me is that I've been united with Christ in his death. and He's the first fruit, and I've been united in that. And now I've been resurrected to live a new life. And I, I don't just take off the bad things from my calendar, but now I can put on those things that are Christ-exalting. That is the beauty of the gospel. 
And so my, my calendar can be this, this tool that I use. The, the rhythm and pattern of my life can be, can be used to be dedicated to good works, as Ephesians 2.10 tells me. I can now walk in these good works. First fruits was about giving the, the first Lord. Now I have the ability, not out of obligation, but, but out of just out of love for God. You know, I'm going to fill the, the time that I spend working. I'm going to be rejoiced in that because I know that I'm earning money, that the, the first of it I can, I can give to the Lord. I can, I can engage in good works for God's glory by God's grace because I've been united with Christ. My calendar can reflect that. The Feast of Weeks, the fourth thing I want us to think about. As we come to the Feast of Weeks, we see this. My calendar needs to proclaim that I trust Christ to provide a harvest. This is the, the last of the spring harvests that, that's mentioned here. It's, it's seven weeks or 50 days after the Passover, and this marks the end of the grain harvest, this, this feast does. It has a couple other names. It's also called, not just the Feast of Weeks, but it's also called the Feast of Harvest. It's, it's also called Pentecost. Pentecost is, it means, means 50th, right? This was to be a, a, a harvest, a, a feast in which there was joy as they recognized the land and the harvest belonged to God. Deuteronomy 16 describes celebrating this Passover, I'm sorry, this, this feast of, of, of Pentecost. And it says, you shall rejoice, this is Deuteronomy 16.11, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. And so we see this in the Psalms as well. The people, as they celebrate this fast, are saying, okay, I'm trusting in God to provide this harvest. And there was also, as we see in the Psalms, as they describe Psalms celebrating the harvest, there's this idea that, that God was going to bless us and as God blessed us, the nations would, would come to worship God. I think that's Psalm, I think it's Psalm 78. God's blessed us, and as he, as he blesses us, the, the nations come to us and they, and they worship God. In other words, God provides a physical harvest. Why? For a spiritual harvest as well. That's... That was worked into the calendar of the Israelites, a recognition that God is the God of both physical and spiritual harvest. They meditated upon it. They thought about it. You and I, as we think about the rhythm of our life, the structure of our life, need to be thinking about Jesus Christ as, as Lord of a spiritual harvest. And our lives need to be designed in such a way that we are excited about the gospel and about seeing people respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 describes the day in which 3,000 souls were added to the church. And how does Acts chapter 2 begin? It says, when the day of what? When they have Pentecost arrived, they're all together in one place. Isn't, isn't that interesting? It's this, it's this moment in which they're celebrating the harvest of God, and it's the day in which the, the first mass conversions to Christianity take place. You and I need to believe that God is a God of harvest, and that God is a God who will bring in to his home, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. If my calendar doesn't reflect my passion for that, it's not a calendar that's exalting Christ. The Feast of Trumpets, in verses 23 through 25, that the Feast of Trumpets, I see that my, my calendar needs to proclaim that I believe that Christ is, is returning. And just very simply here, what we see with the Feast of Trumpets, it's, it's described in greater detail in Numbers 29, but this, this Rosh Hashanah, it, it, it's this blowing of the trumpets that, that ends one year and, and begins another agricultural year. This is uh, the fall 
festival, kind of ushering those in. And as we look at the the New Testament, we often see trumpets heralding the the arrival of of a new season, of a new time. We we see this in 1 Thessalonians, that the trumpets are going to to resound. And we see it in 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The the trumpets exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as they usher in this, this new age. And you and I, as we think about our lives and our calendars and how we live them, we say, okay, I'm, I'm living this life and I'm thinking about the eternity and Christ's return. Sixth thing I want us to see here is the Day of Atonement. And we've talked about the Day of Atonement before. My calendar needs to proclaim that I am free in Christ to pursue spiritual disciplines. You say, now Daniel, how do you get at that? Well, remember as we looked at this Passover, I'm sorry, at this Day of Atonement in chapter 16. We've talked about it already, but something that's emphasized in verse 16 and here in chapter 23 is, we see it in verse 29, it's this idea of affliction. It says this is a day that's, that's accompanied by affliction. What does affliction mean? It, it doesn't mean aestheticism that's going to cause you to be found acceptable to, to God. It's, it's describing a spirit of, of humility and repentance that, that manifests itself through, through fasting and prayer. And so the people of Israel, as they, as they come to God, and again, this is worked into this, this day in their, their calendar year, they're recognizing their need for God's salvation, and they're humbling themselves and saying, God, only you can provide the salvation. Only you can provide the salvation. Now, what this means for you and for me, who have received Jesus Christ and been united with him in his death and resurrection, is that now, in him, there is nothing that we need to do in order to find forgiveness. But now the things that we do, that the spiritual disciplines that we practice, are God's means of grace that allow us to become more and more devoted to him. It's not like Jesus went out and, and mowed our lawn and said, hey, you know what, I just left a little bit over there. Do you mind just getting the mower and just finishing that little? No, God has completely, Jesus Christ has completely covered everything. And the Day of Atonement reminds us that, that Christ's work was, was all satisfactory. Hebrews chapter 9 says this, if, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if that's sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? As I think about Jesus Christ, I understand that through his death and resurrection, I have no dead works that I need to do any longer. But now I have been freed to serve a living God. As we've talked about before, with holiness, what is holiness? It's dedicating myself to God. I have the ability to do so and to practice spiritual disciplines, the, the afflictions, not in order to find acceptance before God, but to live out a life of love and obedience to Him. Last feast, the Feast of Booths. As we look at the Feast of Booths, we see this. My calendar needs to proclaim that I trust in God's physical provision for me in Christ. I want us to look at this, and, and as we look at this, we're going to kind of see an overarching principle that, that brings us hopefully back to Christ and back to the gospel. Not that we left it, but brings it back to our, the forefront of our mind. Look, look, look at a couple things here. Here in the passage, he says, you're going to, to take the fruit of the, the splendid trees, this is verse 40, and you're going to rejoice. You're going to rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. And the people are called to, to live in these, these, these little dwelling places for, for seven days. Verse 42 says, All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generation may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I I'm Yahweh, I'm the Lord your God. So I want you to do this so that you remember my provision for the people when I brought them out of Egypt. And so what we see happen next in Scripture, we realize that they, they, didn't, they didn't practice this perfectly. Deuteronomy encourages them, 
commands them to do this as well. It says, you shall rejoice in your feast. This is to be a, a time of, of rejoicing. But then we come to the book of Nehemiah. And this is as the people come out of exile, right? So, so we're, we're in the Pentateuch, and then they get all these instructions, and then Joshua comes in, they conquer the land, and then there's the time of the judges, then there's the time of the kings, then they are carried away into exile, and then they come back from exile in Nehemiah. And, and when Nehemiah, we read this, we read that they, they find the law, and Ezra reads it to them, and they find out about this thing called the Feast of Booths. And they decided to, to obey it. So it's, and it tells us in the text, all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths for, the, for from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, so way back here, to that day, way up here, the people of Israel had not done so. This had been a feast that they had not observed for hundreds and hundreds of years. What was the result? And by the way, there were some really good excuses during that time for, for why they didn't. Why the rhythm of their life, it wasn't practical, it wasn't convenient for them to, to live out that way. Then it says, but when they did so, there was very great rejoicing. There was very great rejoicing. As they contemplated God and his provision for them, what was there? There was joy and rejoicing. Now here's, here's where I want to kind of bring it all together and, and, and prepare our hearts for taking the Lord's Supper. We have convinced ourselves that the calendar that we have established for ourselves in idolatry is the calendar that's going to bring us joy. And that doing the things that God has called us to do with our time is not a path to joy. And what we see here is that even though the people had had hundreds of years of great excuses for not having a calendar that reflected the the rhythms and patterns of life that God wanted them to have to think about his redemption, they weren't excuses that ultimately led to joy. And God wants us to have a life that the rhythm and pattern proclaims our hope and our trust and our joy and our rest and our delight in him, not to punish us, not to make life hard, not to make life miserable, but so that we can find our greatest joy and satisfaction in him. Now here's, let me invite the men to prepare to, to pass out the Lord's Supper. And, and, and as they do so, here, here's, here's how we respond to this message. Because if you're like me, you're saying, okay, it is time. It is, it's time to get serious about my calendar. I'm going to pull out my, uh, you know, my cool Evernote app and my calendar app, and I'm going to download a new app, and I'm going to use to do it. I'm I'm, we're going to solve this thing. Okay, that's, that's me. That's, that's how I think about things. Here's what we need to do. If it's true of you, as it is for me, that my calendar doesn't proclaim my love for the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that it needs to, the answer is not to respond by trying to find peace in doing things, right? It needs to begin with repentance and coming to God and saying, God, I failed in this. I want to love you more. Help me do so. And so as we, as men pass out, begin to pass out the elements here for communion. By the way, you don't need to be a member of our church to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. You simply need to be a person who's placed your faith in Jesus Christ. We encourage you. Uh, to be a, a member of a local church, but um, you don't have to be a member of our local church to participate in in this. But but as we meditate here in preparation for the Lord's Supper, I encourage you, ask the Lord for forgiveness and ask Him to help you love Him and to live out that love and how you structure your life. And Father, as we meditate on these things, help us to do so, not in our own strength, but by the grace of your Son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. As we take, or prepare to take the bread, we know that the bread represents the sacrifice of our, our Lord Jesus Christ. My life on a day-to-day basis 
It doesn't reflect making perfect decisions with, with how to spend my time. Our Lord Jesus Christ lived every moment with, with complete perfection. Never doing what he shouldn't do. Never failing to do something that he should. If the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God by your heart, soul, mind, strength, I have failed to do that in profound ways on a moment-by-moment basis. And Jesus Christ never has and never did his, during his earthly ministry. If I'm called to love my neighbor as I love myself, I've failed to do that on a moment-by-moment basis, and yet there's never a moment where Jesus Christ did fail in that second greatest commandment. I need his righteousness. I need God to look at me and see not my imperfections, but the absolute perfection of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as I partake of the bread with you this morning, what I am proclaiming is my sin and yet my union with a perfect Savior. On the night that he was betrayed, if he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The cup represents the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. Not only have I failed in, perfect, in terms of the perfect obedience I need, but in terms of continuing in obedience to God, I have no ability to know myself to be motivated or even once motivated to accomplish what I'm motivated to do. As I partake of the cup with you, what I'm proclaiming is my union with Jesus Christ through his blood, that I'm now part of the new covenant where I'm relying not upon my own works to continue in faith in Jesus Christ, but upon my union with him, the basis of his death and suffering on the cross. The same way after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the grace in in an area I've been talking about this morning where I have have failed so profoundly. I ask for your continued forgiveness and mercy to me. I pray for my family, uh, that they would not suffer as a result of my failure in these areas. And I trust in the forgiveness that's provided in your son Jesus and ask for continued grace to allow my life in every aspect to reflect my, my hope and my love for your son Jesus. And I pray this. And I pray for our church that we would rest in you. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.